You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 19. And we're looking together at verses 13 through 17. You'll find this on page 928 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 19. And we're going to be reading together verses 13 through 17. Hear the word of God. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Last time we saw how Paul's gospel ministry in Ephesus had been richly blessed by God. For two whole years, he preached Christ in the hall of Tyrannus. And as a result, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so powerful was his ministry, it says, that articles of clothing from him were used to heal sick people. Handkerchiefs and aprons touched by the apostle were blessed with healing power. And naturally, a gospel ministry like that caused quite a stir in Ephesus. It had a tremendous impact on people, including the less respectable crowd. Paul's success was not lost on those hoping to capitalize on the Spirit's power. Much like Simon Magus, they saw a potential for making a profit. So a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to imitate Paul in casting out devils. And in their foolish attempt, they themselves tried invoking the name of Jesus. Among them, we're told, were seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish high priest. And Luke doesn't tell us much about these men, but they did learn a hard lesson. They had received every advantage, nurture, education, training. After all, they were sons of the high priest, esteemed in the nation of Israel. But here they went astray and they did something that they should not have done. They used the name of Jesus as a charm or worse, as a means of worldly gain. 
And having witnessed the evidence of Paul's ministry, they tried to harness the same power. And such power, if you think about it, could bring riches beyond their wildest imagination. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, exorcists were held in high esteem, men or women who were supposedly cast out demons. That's an exorcist. And this was true especially of Jewish exorcists for whatever reason. It may have been because their Hebrew incantations were viewed as having a mystical quality. We don't know. But the more exotic the incantation, the more effective it was thought to be. And this meant that Jewish exorcists could become quite wealthy, very rich. Every parent, I think, here can imagine how difficult this must have been for their father, the high priest. Here was this ranking, high-ranking Jewish official with seven rogue sons. And it was embarrassing, if not even scandalous. And his reputation was at stake. And when those seven men tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus, of course, as we read, it backfired. They said to the evil spirit, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? The devil knew Jesus to be the incarnate son of God. And here we have an example of devil's faith. We've talked about that before. This devil had faith. There was no need to convince him. They knew who Jesus was. And of course, as you and I both know, many in the church today have devil's faith. They believe in the historical Jesus, but they don't trust him. They don't rely upon him. They don't harbor any love for him in their hearts. And what is sad is that they will be surprised on that great and awesome day when Jesus says to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. This devil also knew the apostle Paul through whom Jesus had been working. After all, Paul was an official representative of the Most High. He was an apostle. But the the demon showed no respect for the frauds using Christ's name in vain. They possessed no power They had no authority to do anything to this evil spirit. On the contrary, as the record tells us, the demon-possessed man turned on them and thrashed them. It says the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded, stripped, beaten, Humiliated and overpowered, they fled from the scene. And of course, news of that kind of thing spread rapidly among the Ephesian people. Fear came upon them all. The Roman citizens were struck with awe and wonder at Christ's power in Paul, but that majestic name invoked by the apostle was not to be trifled with. It was not to be taken in vain. It's powerful. It's like an unfamiliar gun when wrongly handled. It can hurt you. The seven sons of Sceva had no heartfelt veneration for the Lord Jesus Christ, and they had no faith in his name. And again, as I said, they tried to use it as a charm. They wanted to make a few bucks to be crass. So why not capitalize on a good thing? 
Worked for Paul. God says in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And God will not let the name of his son be profaned with impunity. He'll not let it be profaned without any consequences whatsoever. Either now or later in this life or in the life to come, there will be a recompense. And it's a fascinating passage, I believe, and I'd like us to draw three lessons. The blessing of sincerity, the danger of hypocrisy, and the glory of God's sovereignty. The first lesson has to do with the blessing of sincerity. I believe as illustrated by the Apostle Paul. The devil said to the sons of Sceva, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. So in other words, he was well aware of God's son and his respected apostle. And does anyone else wonder, as I did, why this evil spirit would respect Paul, who was a mere man? Just a man. Why would he pay regard to this man and yet disrespect seven sons of the high priest? What made them to differ? Well, the answer, I believe, is that Paul was an apostle and he had Christian privileges. His office was apostolic. He was an official and authoritative representative of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that says a lot. The risen Savior had commissioned him as such on the Damascus Road. But perhaps more importantly, Paul's Christian privilege was his union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was united to Christ by faith. And that makes all the difference in the world. Saul of Tarsus, now called Paul, was a child of the king and an adopted son of heaven. And the same is true of all sincere believers and all earnest disciples of Christ. Do you know what he said to Timothy in his second epistle? This is what Paul said. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. And the same thing can be said truthfully of every sincere Christian here. Paul's faith was genuine. He trusted in Christ for salvation. He said to the Galatians, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There was nothing in Paul in and of himself that commanded respect. He was a sinner like you and me. He calls himself chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1. Yes, he was a brilliant man, I know that. God had endowed him with amazing gifts, but really he had no claim to true greatness in and of himself. There was no reason to expect deference. As a man, he had no inherent power over devils or demonic power. Had he tried to exercise this devil spirit apart from Christ, he too would have been thrashed. But he was united to Christ by faith. The spirit of Christ lived within him. His faith was sincere and his trust was genuine. So he was a believer to be reckoned with. 
and his ministry was powerful and it was effective and he was respected in the spiritual realm. Isn't that amazing? And the same is true of you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This man had been apprehended by the Spirit and irresistibly drawn to Jesus, and his life was in the hands of the Lord of life, and his soul was possessed by the Spirit of life. How many Latin scholars are in the room today who know the root words from which we get the English sincerity or sincere? Some of you young people who are in Latin class. As you probably know, it's derived from two words, sine cara or sine sera, however you want to say it. And it means without wax, sine sera, sincere. Because you see, the Romans were known for their beautiful, majestic statuary. Many of the marble statues and busts of important Romans still exist to this day. You can see them. When displayed, they would write two words above the bust, sine sera, without wax. Because you see, if a dishonest sculptor accidentally chipped the statue, he'd fill the hole with wax. He tried to make it look real, much like a body shop uses putty on a car, right? For the Romans, so a fully genuine statue or bust was to be without wax. We've adopted the word as a reference to the honesty of one's heart. If you really trust in Christ, if you truly believe in him, then you are sine sera or sine cara. With respect to the Christian faith, I can say that you are without wax. You're genuine. Your faith is sincere. You're earnest and heartfelt and truthful. You're a child of the king. And every sincere believer is in the hand of the Lord of life and possessed by the spirit of life, just like Paul. And we're united to Jesus as branches to a vine and we're joined together like husband and wife. It's a spiritual and a mysterious relationship and yet it is very true and it's real. Union with Christ. We're like engrafted branches drawing life-giving sap from the vine. And Christ is the vine, of course, and we are the branches. And once united, we commune with him. Isn't that incredible? There is this rich and intimate fellowship between the risen Christ and the sincere believer. I can't explain it. It's mysterious, but it is supernatural. But if you take away our union with Christ, there is no communion. Everything that we have and everything that we enjoy in Christ is based upon our union with him. In other words, you and I have to be grafted in if we are to receive his benefits. If there's no union with Christ, there is no forgiveness from Christ and there is no life in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul so often describes the Christian in the New Testament as being in Christ. The Apostle John puts it this way, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, 
It's this amazing participation in the Savior. It's a strange, mysterious, yet real union. The Spirit dwelling within the believer's heart, enabling him or her to trust in Jesus, as we heard this morning. And the Father has given the Son to have life in himself, and Jesus communicates his life to us, his followers, through his Holy Spirit. And we become one. We become one with Christ and we receive all the benefits of the gospel. Think of it, the forgiveness of sins, an acceptance with God, eternal life in the realm of glory. It launches us, according to Thomas Boston, into an ocean of happiness and a paradise of pleasure. I love the way he uses words. An ocean of happiness and a paradise of pleasure. That's what a sincere faith in Jesus can do. That doesn't mean your life is without difficulty, but it wells up within. And it's all very supernatural. It's wrought by the power of God alone, and you can no more unite yourself to Christ than a branch can unite itself to the vine. It's something only God can do. As the master gardener, he himself grafts us into his son by the power of his spirit. And he does it in and through the instrument of a sincere faith. A sincere faith. And let me just say again that this is a personal and effectual and indissoluble union. It's deep and it's intimate. And it's more intimate than any relationship you can have on earth. Name it, husband and wife, parent and child, the closest of friends, David and Jonathan. Scripture does draw these parallels with this wonderful mystical union, but there is nothing that can compare with it on earth. When one is united to Christ, he or she is honored and enriched in marvelous ways. He now bears the triune name. He's lifted out of spiritual poverty and shame, and he's granted freedom at the throne of grace. That's what we're doing right now. And he's given the promise of everlasting life. Paul says, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And it means that if you are a sincere Christian, not perfect in any way, but sincere If you're a sincere Christian without wax, then the whole universe belongs to you. All things don't work against you, but God works all things together for you. There's no evil in the afflictions that you are called to endure. They serve your salvation. They may be painful. They may be difficult. They may be filled with sorrow but they serve your salvation. That's the promise. And there is no other people on earth that can lay claim to that. It's a blessing. Indissoluble. It cannot be broken. It cannot be severed. And all of this is true of those who sincerely receive and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those whose faith is concerned only with externals, But for those whose faith is concerned not only with externals, but in truth, this is a marvelous blessing. 
And let me just say this morning that there is no more important issue facing you and I in this life than this one. Ask yourself, in the privacy of your own mind, am I united to Christ by faith or am I not yet joined? And the answer to that weighty question is of the utmost importance. I'm glad you're here to hear it. It is an an implicit exhortation to make sure that we are in fellowship with him. And the solemnity and the magnitude of it ought to influence all of our waking moments. I want you to suppose something with me. Suppose you could see on one side the glory of heaven. And suppose you could see on the other side the torments of hell. Here you can see the heavenly reward. There you can hear the shrieks of the damned. And you observe that all those who sincerely trusted in Christ are united to him and blessed. You see it. You also see all those who rejected Christ and ignored the offer enduring unspeakable pain. You observe it. And these who are in agony would give anything to have but one more opportunity to trust in Christ. Blessed, cursed. And with these two visions before you, would you hesitate to believe in Jesus? (laughs) But you know something? These are the pictures that are drawn for us in the inspired pages of Scripture. We don't have to imagine The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you don't need visions. God has already revealed it to us in the Bible. And it's an exhortation for us not to waste time or opportunity, but to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessing of sincerity. But then more briefly, let me talk about the danger of hypocrisy as illustrated by the sons of Sceva. The term hypocrisy is from the Greek practice of playing a part in the stage. It's from the drama. Actors were called hypocrites, not in a bad sense, but in that day and age, they were called hypocrites because they pretended to be someone else. And so the English hypocrisy means to pretend to be what I'm not or to pretend to believe what I don't. It's the very opposite of sincerity. And it was the great sin of the Pharisees, you'll remember. When we lived in New Hope, Pennsylvania, one late night, our two dogs were out back barking like crazy. They woke us up out of a sound sleep, and I was tempted just to ignore them, but they seemed frantic and perhaps even in danger. So I went out back with a flashlight and found them barking at a possum. I had never seen one. I was naive. 
Didn't know what to expect. It was motionless. It was limp. It even had its tongue hanging out of its mouth. I didn't know they could do that. But he was pretending to be dead. And when I shoveled it over the fence, it stirred and waddled off to do whatever he did. With many professing Christians in our day, the situation is reversed. They are pretending to be alive when they're spiritually dead. They claim to know Jesus. They say they trust Christ, but they really don't. As Paul says, they have the appearance of godliness. They show up at church. They dress nicely. They speak kindly. They're polite, nice, but they deny its power. And there's no real substance to their religion. It's nothing but a sham. There's no genuine relationship to Christ. There's no true fellowship with Jesus. They're not concerned about their eternal welfare. There's no struggle within. And of course, this is nothing new because there were hypocrites in the early church. John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Obviously, he knew what was going on. He's talking about hypocrisy. In the passage that Pastor Pilon read in the Old Testament, we consider Antiochus and the hypocritical Jews in Daniel 11. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So among those Jews were those who listened and turned from truth. Outwardly, they participated in worship but inwardly they compromised the truth. And consider as well the seven sons of Sceva who were utter hypocrites. They used the name of Christ as if they were Christians, but they had no relationship to Jesus. And that's a very dangerous error. Look what happened to them. The beating that they received, I believe, I believe, is symbolic of the punishment that all hypocrites will get. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Well, let's not dabble in Christianity. Either let's get in or let's get out. Avoid hypocrisy. Jesus says to disciples, and you know the passage, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will be not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Now, these were good men. These were men who had left everything for Jesus Christ, but they had to be warned against hypocrisy. And if they had to be warned, so do we because it, it insinuates itself into the heart of man. It spreads like leaven, hypocrisy. Inside, it begins to swell and to sour, just like leaven and puffs up our pride. And as our Lord states, sooner or later, the truth will come out. It'll be exposed. It's not about saying Christian words or performing Christian duties or knowing Christian people. 
For so many, their Christianity consists simply of attending church. And I'm not arguing against attending church, believe me. I think that's a good thing. But if that's it, that's not enough. They don't read their Bibles. They don't engage in prayer. They don't repent of sin daily. Their lives seem to be no different from those of the people in the world. There's no interest in Christian truth, no effort at Christian duties, only a superficial understanding of the gospel and no practical godliness. That's hypocrisy. I'm not saying here that a man or a woman whose faith is simple and uncomplicated is a hypocrite. That's not what I'm saying. A simple believer can trust in a wise Christ and a weak believer can trust in a strong Christ. But an insincere person who never grows may actually be a hypocrite. One who willfully refuses to do anything to counter, to cultivate faith. No grief over sin, no sign of repentance, no evidence of saving faith. They draw near with their lips. They sing the songs of Zion, but their hearts are far away from him. And do you know what Jesus says about their worship? It's in vain. It's empty. It's worthless. It actually has a hardening effect because nobody's the same. You walk in those doors and you worship. You're changed one way or the other. They become more desensitized to truth. Mahatma Gandhi, the great Indian leader, said this, I believe in Christian conversion if it is genuine. On the other hand, he said, there is nothing worse than being something on the outside that you are not on the inside. If a man has found God through Jesus Christ, then he must show the world he is a follower of Jesus or else be living a lie. Now, you and I both know that Gandhi was not a Christian, but he could tell a hypocrite when he saw one. But that leads us to the third and final lesson even more briefly than the second, and that has to do with the glory of God's sovereignty. Because that's what made the difference between the sincerity of Paul and the hypocrisy of the sons of Sceva. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. And so you see, Christians have no reason to boast except in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. No reason to boast in anything else. I don't care how many trophies you have. Are you in Christ or not? Because believers and unbelievers are two radically different kinds of people. They're both sinful creatures, but one is redeemed while the other is not. Believers are in union with Christ while unbelievers are separated from him. Believing Paul was fruitful, respected. Unbelieving sons of Sceva were not. And God's sovereign grace made all the difference. And in both, he's glorified. That's the amazing thing. Think of it. Whether it's belief or unbelief, whether it's sincerity or hypocrisy, all will glorify the Lord. Believers will magnify his grace and unbelievers will magnify his justice. And he can overrule the most hypocritical life to work out his sovereign purpose. 
And that ought to be of tremendous comfort for every sincere believer who is without wax. So let's be thankful for his eternal love and humbled by his amazing grace. And as we prepare to sing praise, we can truly give thanks. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvelous grace that you've showered upon us, undeserving people that we are. We have nothing to boast in but you. We thank you for Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who is given to us in his name. Please enable us to sing your praises now with joy and gratitude, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.